There's a lot of traditions and misinformation when it comes to the subject of the love of God. Surprising as it is, because you think in the love of God everybody would have a sure and biblical understanding, but that's not the case. God's love has been twisted and, I would say, perverted by not grasping hold of the biblical concept of the love of God. Last time we talked about the love of God, we talked about the unconditional love of God, a concept that is really not biblical at all. It gives the impression that the sinner doesn't need to do anything because God loves them unconditionally. By the very word, there are no conditions. God just loves you. And the sinner, the unregenerate person, says, great, I love me too. God loves me. I love me. Great. And the message is your picture, your photographs on God's refrigerator. Well, is that true? We've been looking at that. There are verses that certainly go against that. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, Revelation 20 says he was thrown into the lake of fire. When you hear that kind of message of the unconditional love of God, what do you do with a verse like that? And many verses like that. Mark 9, 47, it's better, Jesus said, for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Um, people don't see the realities of hell and jump in. They're thrown in. But this is all pervasive. There's a song out right now, very popular, by Torin Wells, and the title is He's Crazy About You. There's no mention of the fact that God may not love you the way I'm talking about here. Uh, no, he's crazy about you. Didn't want to live without you, the words say. He traded the stars for a chance at your heart just to show you it's true. He's crazy about you, died so you didn't have to, tore your failure apart, now he wears the scars, that's how much he loves you. He's never been mad at you, he's only been madly in love. And it's never about what you do, it's always been about what he's done, it's something you just can't hear enough. Always crazy about you. He's never held your past against you. He's only held you close. He'll never give and take it back. You're the one he chose. And the more of him you know, you'll know he's crazy about you. What do you do with that? Well, I don't listen to that after hearing it once. I was really stirred and thought, ah, that's just so unbiblical to just throw it out there as if God loves everyone in the exact same way. Can you say that God loves you to someone who is certainly fighting against God, running against God, the enemy of God? Well, God loves his enemies, that's true. And I would say that there's a certain measure of love that God has for the sinner, but there are different kinds of love in God. That's what I want to talk about today. There are verses that show God's kindness to all, including animals and people on earth. He sends his rain 
to the just and the unjust, we're told. This is very, very clear. God does not differentiate when rain comes between the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Christian, and say only the Christian gets the rain. Not at all. Here's what I want to say. As human beings, we're capable of both having and displaying different kinds of love. We love our favorite chair. We love our family. But hopefully not in the same way. Hopefully there's a depth of love for the family that is beyond what we feel and love about our chair. If there's a fire in our house, the first thought, I'm sure, would be to make sure all the family members were safely out of harm's way. The chair would be an afterthought. Hopefully that's the case. We love our pets, but we hopefully love our spouse more. We love our country far more than we love the electricity company that supplies power to our home. Likewise, because we're capable of displaying and having different kinds of love, likewise, God has more than one degree or measure of love. His, his love is, hear this, multifaceted. It's multidimensional. That's if we take all that the Bible says on the subject to get a biblical picture. God the Father loves his eternal son more than he loves the pigeon on my roof. He's loving to all his creatures, and yet he's clear that he has a special love for his own elect people. Certain people recoil from the ramifications of what I'm saying here. They'd say, well, but John 3:16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And uh, I've seen Christians play dueling verses. You know what I mean by that? One says one verse, the other from the other side, on the other side of the spectrum, quotes another verse in opposition. And they play dueling verses. Uh, one quotes a scripture that affirms something, another person on the other side quotes a scripture that denies that, negates that. That really doesn't get us anywhere. It's really a display of immaturity. One says, God loves the world, and the other one quotes Psalm 5.5. 5. You ever read it? Let's just read it. Psalm 5, verse 5. It's in your Bible as well as mine. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all evildoers. That's what the psalmist said. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's strong language. Hate and abhors. What Bible are we reading? Yes, that's the Bible. That's Psalm 5.5 5 is in our Bibles. But you're more likely to see John 3.16 rather than Psalm 5.5 5 displayed on a refrigerator. But both are part of Scripture, and the good theologian doesn't choose to believe one verse he likes more than the other. What he seeks to do is harmonize all that Scripture reveals. Amen? 
I believe the answer to these kind of potential dilemmas is to understand that God's love is multidimensional, multifaceted. God has different degrees of love. John 3.16 is a wonderful verse, but it's interesting in even reading that, that the word world there in John's gospel is used at least 10 different ways. The word world, W-O-R-L-D, can mean, firstly, the entire universe. John 1 verse 10 reads this way, He was in the world, that's planet Earth, and the world, planet Earth, and by implication all creation, was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. What's the third use of the word world there? The world did not know him. It's talking about the people of the world. Do you see, even in that one verse, you've got two different ways that the word world is used. He was in the world, that's planet Earth. The world, planet Earth, and all creation by implication, was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world there represents or means the people of the world. John 17, 5, Jesus praying to his Father, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I believe there it's talking about the physical planet. Could even mean the entire universe, the way that word is used. Before the world existed. Uh, only the world, what about uh, other stars, other planets. No, I think that's included in what's being communicated there in John 17, 5. Second uh, concept about world is the physical earth. The physical earth. Uh, John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the difference between the two uh, is that in John 1.10, we're talking about the entire universe. And in this uh, second uh, concept, John 13.1, we're talking about physical earth. Uh, departing out of this world to the Father, talking about the physical earth. Uh, John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Again, I believe that's speaking about the physical earth, using hyperbole there. Uh, third concept of this word world is the world system. A uh, few scriptures on this, John 12, and we're only in John's gospel here. John 12, 31, now this is the judgment, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world be cast out. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There it's talking about the world system. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 14, 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. John 16, 11, Concerning judgment, because 
the ruler of this world is judged. There's a world system with a ruler and that ruler is under judgment. Fourth concept of this word world is all humanity minus believers. Let me say that again. All humanity minus believers. John 7 verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's not talking about the planet. It's talking about humanity minus believers. Fifth concept is a big group, but less than all people everywhere. For this, we go to John 12, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, when we look at that, does that mean everybody on the planet? Were people in China flocking towards him? No, it's a, world that, it's a word that means a big, a large group, but less than all people everywhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. That's a big group, but the Eskimos were not involved in that. Sixth, the elect only. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, thinking through what the Bible teaches, who are saved? Only the elect. So that's what's in view when the word world is used in that particular verse. Number seven, the non-elect only. Isn't that interesting? John 3, 17 refers to the elect only. John 17, 9 refers to the non-elect only. Jesus prayed, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Hmm. Eight, the realm of mankind. John 1, 10. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And uh, I would say that this is probably the best understanding of the word world in John 3.16 also. The, the realm of mankind, God's love for the world, God so loved the world, the realm of mankind. What did he do? That he gave his one and only son. Not that everybody would be saved, but a particular people would be saved. Those who believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Ninth, Jews and Gentiles. In other words, not just Israel, but many Gentiles too. We see this in John 4:42. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. If we say that means everybody um, unilaterally, everybody in the world, hmm, you've got a problem. You've got the doctrine of universalism, which we've already established is not biblical. Some people don't go to heaven. Some people are not saved eternally. 
So when he is indeed called the savior of the world, it's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. In other words, not merely Israel, but Gentiles also. And 10, the general public as distinguished from a private group. In other words, not those in small private groups. Well, that might seem a little obscure, but let me read the verses that uh, portray this, John 7, and again, all through this, we're only dealing with the Gospel of John, John 7, 3 and 4. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, the general public, not show yourself to the Eskimos and um, those in South America. No, it's um, the general public, as distinguished from a small private group. Now, going through that list, it actually can be very helpful, especially when traditions reign supreme in some people's minds. They've probably never done a Bible study where they've gone through John's Gospel regarding the word world and assumed its meaning wherever it's encountered. You see the word world, it means all people everywhere at all times. Well, that's a tradition, but it doesn't survive the scrutiny of study. I want to believe things that can survive scrutiny. Someone might uh, say to me, Let's say I have a gold watch. I don't, but let's say I had a gold watch and someone challenged me and said, that's not gold. Well, I believe it's gold. My father gave it to me and told me it was gold. And he says, well, prove it. Well, we can prove it by taking it to a jeweler and it might be that uh, the jeweler signs for it but takes it away for a few days to do some testing and comes back and says, yep, It's real, true gold. It's a gold watch. Or else he comes back and says, that's not real, that's fake. That's not real gold at all. You've been told a lie. You know, I'd rather find out it wasn't the real thing than believe the lie that it was the real thing, as hard as that might be. I want to believe the true, and I want to have the true. If if I'm saying it's gold, I should be able to prove it. Well... If someone says God loves people unconditionally, they should be able to prove it by not just a verse out of context or a misunderstood verse, but to be biblical, we should be able to embrace everything the Bible says on a subject. That's what we're doing. And we go through the scriptures on the word world and we see that there are different meanings in the context. Well, let's go further. Look at a passage of scripture that gives us a lot of insight as to the multi-dimensional character of God's love. I'm talking about Romans 9, starting in verse 10. And there we read these words. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, 
the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It's quite the passage. Now, however we understand the phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, there in Romans 9, I think we'd all have to agree, now hear this, that God's love for Jacob was certainly different or of a different kind than his love for Esau. Now that is the case, or else the text is meaningless. You can't say, well, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, but he loved them both the same. No, there's a difference spelled out. Couldn't be more clear. He had a different measure of love for Jacob than he did for Esau. And that's the biblical doctrine. God has the right to set his love, his eternal electing love, on some and not on all. And he does. So, this being the case, this one verse understood correctly, refutes the idea that God loves everyone in the exact same way. There are different dimensions of the love of God. There it is. Now, some would seek to avoid this conclusion by saying that Jacob and Esau refer to nations rather than individuals. Well, it is true that Jacob and Esau became mighty nations, However, the text itself refers to individual people. Where? Jacob and Esau in the womb of their mother. And it does not refer to nations. And let's go further. Even nations are made up of individuals. Think about that. What are nations? It's a lot of people. If you were to speak of Italy and Italians... That's a lot of people, right? It's not just a concept, it's people. For God to set his love on a nation and reject another nation certainly has ramifications for the individuals within those nations. So the conclusion that many are waiting and wanting to avoid... (laughs) that God elects some but not all, and that he loves some in a special way that he does not love all, it remains inescapable. There it is. 
Let's remember the context here in Romans 9. Paul's explaining why not all of the people of Israel have embraced their Messiah and come to salvation. He's just told us that God's word has not failed because not all Israel is Israel. That's Romans 9 verse 6. Not all Israel in terms of physical descent is viewed as Israel in the eyes of God. True Israel. All Israel as God defined Israel, did embrace the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point. All Israel, as God defines Israel, did embrace the Messiah because they were the, the ones the promise was made to. That's the point of the passage. And it is just this continued flow of thought from Romans 9, excuse me, Romans 8, into Romans 9 that brings us to the statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The Apostle Paul is explaining why God's word does not fail in any way, any way at all, because all the Israel as defined by God will be saved and nothing can separate the true people of God from the love of God. Something that's made clear in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who's the us? It's the people of God who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Romans 8, 29 and 30. So we read these words, though they were not yet born and had done neither, uh, excuse me, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of his call, one brother was chosen and the other was not. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. I will mercy whom I will mercy is a literal way of rendering the original text there. God's electing purpose is uh, very clear. And God's electing purpose to set his electing love on Jacob and not on Esau, hear this, is an explanation as to why God's word has not failed in any way at all. God's promise is true and his word always accomplishes its intended purpose. All the elect will receive his mercy, this mercy. And that's what the entire Romans 9 passage is teaching us. God's choice of one brother, not the other, was not based on their actions or works, but based on the powerful, effectual call of God. Something also made clear in Romans 8, where all the called are justified. The fact is, God is sovereign. As such, he reserves the right to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and to pass over others, leaving them in their hostile disposition against him. God revealed himself to Abraham in a way he did not for his neighbor down the street. Right? We read of God's mysterious love for Israel. Mysterious because God never explains why he does so. He makes it clear that it was nothing in them that determined his choice. His love for them 
was far greater than other nations around them. Isn't that clear? Israel was God's chosen people and to them were given all of the privileges outlined in the early part of Romans 9. God gave Israel things he never gave to China. God didn't even wait for Great Britain to arrive. <laughs> he set his love on Israel with a love that was greater than that which he had for other nations, the nations around them. God wanted a people for himself and sovereignly and unconditionally chose Israel to be his. In choosing Israel, he was not choosing others, the Hittites, the Amorites, or the Philistines. Here are God's own words to Israel. You find them in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. After Christ's resurrection, the Lord Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, but not to Pontius Pilate in his bedroom. The whole Bible speaks of a God who is sovereign in the way he bestows mercy. And that's just it. Many have come to me weeks after hearing me teach on this subject and although they admitted to me that they were at first inwardly hostile and resistant to the teaching I'd brought after taking a second look and examining it for themselves. As I say, not all are prepared to do this. They've made comments such as, wow, it's amazing. Now, I see this truth everywhere I look in Scripture. That's the kind of thing they say. One person told me, now I see God's electing love in places I never imagined. I'm reading my Bible and I'm now seeing that this concept's in the parables of Jesus and in so many other places. I see that Jesus rejoiced that God's truth was hidden from some but revealed to others. I'd read these kinds of passages for years and had never seen it. Luke 10, 21 uh, is something that is very clear as well. It records Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, commenting on these verses, another man said, It has rocked my world to understand that Jesus actually rejoiced that the Father hid truth from some. 
he rejoiced in his father's electing love. What was once a loathsome thing is sweetness and light. Now I can see it. That's so true. If Jesus rejoices in his father hiding, which actually speaks of activity, to hide something means you are proactive, you are doing something. And if Jesus rejoices in his father hiding truth from some that he reveals to others, I think it should at least cause us to ask the question, why? Why? Would God hiding some things from some and revealing his truth to others be precious to the Lord Jesus? Why does it not excite us the way it excited Jesus? That's something to think about for sure. As Romans 9 continues from verse 14, God's, uh, God sees it as perfectly just to dispose and dispense his mercy as he sees fit. Mercy by its very definition cannot be demanded no one can demand mercy you ever thought of that the fact that no fallen angel will ever be redeemed causes no intellectual problem for the angels who are elect in heaven they're not petitioning god say that's not fair they understand god did not need to show mercy to any angel and keep them from sinning Hmm. God's just character remains intact and the angels of God continually sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, we've talked about the text. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What should surprise us about that verse is not that God hated Esau. Esau was a sinner and deserved the wrath of God just like the rest of us. What should astound us is that he set his love on Jacob. This should absolutely shock us. Why would God have anything to do with such a sinner? But sadly, we're not always astounded by this amazing mercy, I think because deep down we tend to believe that everyone deserves mercy. Truth is that everyone is as every bit as much a sinner as Jacob. But until we as Christians really get that, we don't grasp the amazing grace God has bestowed on us. Now, all people receive some mercy. God was very merciful to Esau. But ultimately, Esau did not receive the exact same mercy as his brother Jacob. God sends his reign to all on the just and the unjust. But he bestows his effectual, redeeming love only on some. Not everybody is saved. Some do perish. The fact that even one sinner will be numbered amongst the heavenly host because he was redeemed by the sheer mercy of God in Jesus Christ, that should amaze us. The fact is, this number of the redeemed will not just be a few, but will be so vast that no man can count it. This is what Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we explore it, we see depths and nuances that really do start less. We thank you and we want to get to the place, if we're not already there, where we rejoice in the things that you rejoice in. And Jesus, to rejoice about him making sure some people don't get the truth. Lord, help us to grasp that and swallow that. What do we say to the sinner then? We say what the Bible says. God's love for this world is seen in the giving of his son. And we can say to sinners, God in his love has sent his son. And if you'll believe on him, you'll be saved. If you'll repent and believe the good news of the gospel, you'll be saved. That's what we can say because that's the biblical message. Lord, help us free ourselves from the trappings of tradition and let us see clearly what your word teaches and let's know and proclaim the true God as he really is and understand his word clearly. Lord, as we understand your word clearly, our desire is not to just have big heads, but hopefully big hearts thrilled with the God we come to know more and more. As we grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, may our hearts soar in love for you and in worship of you. May our good theology produce high and good doxology, true worship. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.